Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway. I'm a Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. And I am delighted to welcome you to today's conversation, The Future We Need, Organizing for a Better Democracy in the 21st Century. Um, we're delighted to be hosting this uh, conversation today with our colleagues in the Business and Society Program. And uh, let me give a special thanks to my colleague, Miguel Padro, who was my partner in helping me pull today's conversation together. Um, so today we will be discussing this book right here, The Future We Need, which could not be more timely as we think about the issues of worker power we're seeing today, as well as the issues of, of fragile democracies and how do we think about that. So um, well done, Sarita and Smiley, in terms of timing your book release, because uh, it's, it's, a, it's a terrific book and uh, highly recommend. Um, so uh, I'm not going to do long introductions of them. Uh, you can read, uh, you'll hear from them soon, and you can read their bios on our website. Um, they're amazing. They have amazing experience, and they're the perfect people to have written this book. Um, uh, we're also joined today by uh, Rick Wartsman, who I'll say more about uh, in a minute, who will be moderating the conversation. Um, this conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program ongoing Opportunity in America discussion series in which we explore the changing landscape of economic opportunity in the United States, the implications for workers and communities and ideas, policies and strategies for change. Um, we're very grateful to Prudential Financial, Walmart, the Cerdner Foundation, the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, Bloomberg, and the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth for their support of the Opportunity in America discussion series. Um, and this book talk is actually kind of a nice interlude in a, in a sort of mini series we've been having on the history and future of US labor law. Um, and so I just want to take a moment to say we have two other conversations coming up in that series. I hope you can just join us for those in April. Uh, on April 27th, we'll be talking about Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, Fulfilling the Promise of Equal Opportunity. And on May 4th, we'll have an event on the Occupational Safety and Health Act, the past and future of worker safety and well-being. So uh, please do join us for those. Um, uh, which I think really dovetail nicely with the, many of the themes in this book in terms of how we think about our laws and our democracy and how we think about representing workers. So, um, so just so many intersections and really great that we're having this conversation today. Before we begin, just a quick review of the technology. All uh, attendees are muted. We very, very much welcome your questions. Please use the Slido box on the right side of your screen for questions and comments. Uh, questions can be submitted and upvoted through the Q&A tab. Um, we also know we have an incredibly knowledgeable and expert audience. So if you have ideas, examples, resources, other things related to today's topic, please do, do share those in our um, ideas tab that's also in the Slido box. And finally, we always appreciate your feedback. There is a short survey that we would really love for you to fill out before you leave. Um, and you'll find that in the polls tab in the Slido box. Um, we're uh, delighted to have uh, everybody participating in today's event. Uh, thank you to many of you who submitted questions in advance. We'll try to get as, to as many questions as we can, both the ones submitted in advance and the ones you submit today um, uh, through the Q&A. Um, we also encourage you to tweet about the conversation. Our hashtag is talk opportunity. If you have any technical issues during the webinar, please message us or chat 
or email in the chat or email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Um, the webinar is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our websites. And closed captions should be available for this discussion. Um, click the CC button at the bottom of the video to activate. Okay, so now I will just quickly introduce our moderator for today. Uh, Rick Schwartzman is head of the KH Moon Center for a Functioning Society at the Drucker Institute. Um, he has written for Fast Company, Fortune, Time, Business Week, and many other publications. He's the author of four books, um, including most recently, The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America, and has a forthcoming book this fall, um, looking at low-wage work and the issues of low-wage work through the prism of the experience of Walmart and the investments they've been making in their frontline workforce. Um, so he's a very informed, um, both from a business perspective and from thinking about um, uh, the issues facing workers perspective, he sees it from both sides. So he's a really informed moderator for this conversation. And we are so grateful, Rick, that you have joined us and let me Thank turn you. it over to you. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks so much. And uh, I know we've got a really uh, large audience, which is exciting and, and great. I know we're in for a great conversation. So um, yeah, Smiley and Sarita, thank you. How are you guys doing? Great. It's great to be here. It's a sunny day. I'll take it all day. Yeah. <laughs> Good deal. And you guys have been out stumping, right? Been on the book tour and um, so have, have done a few of these. Yeah, um, yeah, we have. It's it's great to be here. And Rick, so glad to be in conversation with you in particular. So thanks. Well, Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. I won't do a lot of throat clearing here except to say that um, I really enjoyed the book and I learned a lot from the book. And so, um, you know, the future we need to me, we really do need a different future. So, um, uh, you know, it was, it was a pleasure to read your words and, um, you know, your, your experience, your deep experience uh, in these subjects really inform the work. Um, and uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get into it. Um, and I will leave time, as Maureen said, for, um, for audience uh, questions. Some were submitted in advance and we'll get some more through the chat. So please feel free if you're in the audience to go ahead and, and offer your questions. It would be a a lousy program on democracy if I didn't get to your questions. So I will, I will do my best to, uh, to do that. Um, well said, Rick, well said. <laughs> you know, one of the things I really liked about the book and, and admired about the book was um, the way you, you don't mince words. Um, you, you, you both, you know, you say it like it needs to be said. And you do that right from the opening pages where you declare the prevailing political economy of the United States and much of the world is based on principles originally espoused by Southern slave owners, the paternalistic view that they knew what was best for their enslaved workers and that their liberty as individual landowners outweighed the rights of the working women and men who they claimed to own. So I'm wondering, this is obviously our, our sorted horrific foundation as a country. Um, you know, how do you see this manifest in, in the workplace and in the broader economy today? Those are heavy, heavy words. Yeah, it, if it's okay, I'll, I'll jump in and then yeah, uh, please. I feel like so Rick, there's so much. First of all, I'm so glad you said that you appreciate that we don't mince words because uh, uh, <clears throat> it's not always easy to try to translate things in a way that um, <clears throat> everyone can understand and digest. Um, so I, I, I really appreciate that. As a, a black Southerner, I didn't grow up where there were a ton of unions. I didn't come from a, a so-called union family. Um, you know, North Carolina 
where I'm from. It's one of the lowest union debt states in the country. Um, but at the same time, uh, when I saw people come together and fight collectively for things, uh, I saw them win. And so for me, um, you know, the part of the theory that I never understood and kind of maybe came to really grapple with later in life was this understanding of, of why we had uh, so many people who wanted the ability to be in decision making, who wanted the ability to vote or to be able to set standards at their workplace, and yet had so many barriers to being able to do that in our in our state. And it became very clear that um, you know a lot of the the political economy of the South, particularly before the Civil War, had been allowed to continue, and that. You know, I, 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 we didn't articulate this framing of, of uh, going back to this Reconstruction era and even like this idea of the political, political economy of the South as something that's supposed to be um, negative. I don't know that we were built completely on a cracked foundation. I actually think the aspiration for multiracial democracy was really strong and that in the, uh, the period of Reconstruction that we were really looking in that direction with the different amendments, the 13th Amendment to allow us to actually control our labor, uh, the 14th Amendment, um, defining citizenship, 15th Amendment, defining who could vote, that, that we were kind of on this path, but that some of the compromises made along the way allowed the ideas of the Confederacy to, to stay. And while the physical fighting of the Civil War ended, the battle of ideas has continued to, to, to this day. And in, and in fact, Dixie's winning. Um, and so, you know, this idea that we can't actually change and build democracy in the nation without addressing democracy in the South isn't just like a, a nice quote from W.B. Du Bois, but actually like a strategic necessity that if, if we allow the ideas of uh, states' rights over some kind of collective national system, if we allow the idea that employers should paternalistically decide what's best for their workers, just as plantation owners once did, um, that individual liberty is more important than collective good and democracy, then we'll keep losing. It's that simple. And so we felt it important to put that front and center because we wanted to be really clear that this wasn't just another book about workers' rights, but was actually a book that we hope would help, help us understand and begin to clarify the path to get us back to building a multiracial democracy and that the workers who are in motion in this period of time are not simply in motion because they want their own individual freedoms and, and respect, they do, but that it's also that these workers are on the front line of trying to, to preserve and expand the aspirations of our ancestors who wanted to build a, a democracy in the US. No, that's great. I, that makes me think, Sarita, I'm curious your thoughts on this, but you know what, what, when I read that and hearing you now, you know, it really gets down to, to some really, um, you know, practical, tactical things, right? Who's left out of the, who was left out of the National Labor Relations Act and, and the, and the threads that has all the way to today when we talk about essential workers, right? Um, anyway, Sarita, can you, yeah, can, curious your, your take on that. Absolutely, Rick. I was just about to pick up on that. Um, 
that point that the way that we see it manifest today is in fact the continued exclusions of many workers, domestic workers, agricultural workers, um, who aren't even covered under the Fair Labor Standard Act, let alone the National Labor Relations Act. Um, so they don't have the right to collectively bargain. But we also see it in the form of the tipped wage and the legacy and history of the tipped wage being one where, again, there were a set of workers who uh, the, 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 the history is these were mostly black workers who did not need a wage. And if they if you felt the need, if you wanted to tip them, you could tip them. And and people forget that part of the history, that there are still people today who still only make $2.13 an hour and depend on tips, right? So these legacies have continued. And then, of course, as we're having this conversation about the gig economy and gig workers, you know, the other day someone asked me, like, what keeps me up at night? What keeps me up at night is that we may very well be on a path where we could come up with a whole new set of exclusions for a set of workers based on how they're classified or not, that will mean millions of workers are also excluded from these kinds of labor protections. Um, so all of that is what we see. And the only other thing I would add, Rick, is just by way of my background, I grew up in Kodak City in Rochester, New yeah. York. And I grew up in right in the midst of the first round of downsizing that Kodak was going through in the 80s. Um, and really watch the devastation of job loss. And this was a company that had a very paternalistic view of its workers. We, you know, George Eastman was like, I will take care of my employees. And in fact, he did for many years until the company could no longer take care of the workers and the workers had no union, no collective bargaining and lost so much. And it was so devastating for um, not only those workers, but the whole community that I grew up in. And so when you talk about people feeling left behind. People feel deeply left behind by employers, by policymakers, and much more today. And so this is how it's manifesting. Um, these, this notion of, you know, um, that somehow someone else will take care of workers versus workers themselves having the ability to participate in a democratic process, be able to collectively join together and negotiate for their needs. Um, that is what the book is really um, highlighting, is that actually it is about power and workers need power in our economy today. I'm curious, you know, hearing that, I, th I think it'd be great for you all to maybe frame, I, I know we have a really knowledgeable audience, but um, you know, even for folks who, who are in this world, how do you think about the scale of those left behind? In other words, you know, if the, if the labor force is up 160 million or so, like what what percentage do you do you feel like are, you know, in various ways um, feeling in that position that you that you just said? Because it's not a small this is not like an outlier problem is what I'm trying to get to. No, not at all. I mean, if, if we imagine that the number of people in the country who have a union membership are, let's say, so it's what, 6.7% in the private sector, yeah. maybe gets up to 10 or 11 if you include the public sector. And then if we're being super generous about it, right, we can include, let's say another, I'm going to be super liberal, right? 5% are organized in like some other type of organization, be it a worker center or community yeah. organization or something, right? So that still leaves somewhere between like 80, 80 and 90% of the country yeah. that, doesn't have access to some form of, of d 
decision making or governance or even like a pathway to practicing democracy. I mean, there's a reason why unions have been historically called schools of democracy is because right. they they you know it's a create it's a place where we can actually practice decision making and. One of the things I really love from Allison and Heather in the book from the West Virginia teachers, right? It's like they talk about the institution, right? Because we like to talk about some of these big ideas like they just happen in a bubble, but they really require some kind of container, some kind of organization and, and some kind of union, right? And and they were not, just like you said, we didn't mince words. They did not mince words about how messy that process is. And you've got to like consult and confer and you get different opinions. But when a decision is made and people then stick to like the collective decision, the power in that, uh, that there's something about learning how to do that again, even to know that you should then have the ability to do it in other places. And and again, from their story, this idea that after they were able to engage in that process very intentionally and thoughtfully during the um, the, the actions that they had right in, in 2018, where they were beginning to fight over the data surveillance of the state's healthcare program and the apps that they all had to download, right, to, to track their personal and private information. Um, that after they after that experience and after winning, so many of the members in their union locals who had not been active, all of a sudden were coming to meetings, wanted to now figure out how to get more active uh, civically, just in like different political questions or school board or whatever, that all of a sudden they had the will and the desire or even maybe just the imagination to think that they could be a part of the democratic decision-making process. Hmm. Really interesting. So, so look, th this really is the book's central point in a way, right? Is that mm -hmm. works, worksite-based collective bargaining, while obviously critical and, and you know, uh, what you all been involved with in many ways is not the only important form of collective right. bargaining, right? You make clear that this is a powerful practice that people can use to transform the ways in which, you know, their school districts, but their neighborhoods, their healthcare systems, their cities, you know, and so on and behave. Um, but but I want to stick on the work site uh, for a second here, because as Maureen mentioned, we really are in this incredible moment, I think, and I myself am trying to puzzle, puzzle it out. And I'm curious what you think, right? So on the one hand, we have some making the argument that I think largely to a tight pandemic labor market, we haven't seen Kind of this much worker power across the economy in a long time, right? We had strike activity rise last fall so much that the media started calling it striketober. You know, unions have notched some inspiring wins, if not massive, in the in the scheme of things at Starbucks now and and JFK at Amazon. Um, you know, the Biden NR NLRB is making some important changes, and 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 there's more that seem to be in the in the in the offing here, which is great in terms of how labor law is. Um, interpreted and enforced all, all to the good in my mind. Um, on the other hand, right, we've had no real, I don't think, structural change, right? The PRO Act hasn't passed. There hasn't been kind of an enactment of a, you know, Harvard Law School's, you know, clean slate for worker power that would really get us to sectoral bargaining and, and really new forms of, of worker power, um, anti-union employers continue to, to, you know, hold on. And, and, you know, we see even at places that have been organized, do everything they can to, to continue to beat back labor. And in fact, for all the, you know, all the action that's happened, the percentage of private sector workers holding a union card actually fell in 2021. It was down to 6.1%, I believe. Yeah. So, right. So where do you all see it? And Sridhar, maybe I'll start with you. You know, is the glass yeah. half full? Is it half empty? Is it 
something more than that, something less than that? Where, where are we? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that question, Rick. Um, you know, I, I actually believe the glass is half full. Um, okay. and, and I do because, and this is the privilege of where I sit and where Smiley has sat at Jobs of Justice, where we really have worked across, you know, we've always sort of been able to work at the cutting edge, if you will, of the worker movement and labor movement and really work alongside unions, as well as worker centers and worker advocates and community partners in really smart, thoughtful ways. So we get to see some of these innovations as we've outlined in the book. Um, and so the reason I say half, half cup full is because <clears throat> I think what we're actually seeing is, uh, first of all, a huge cultural moment. So I just want to like put the backdrop of a huge cultural moment where um, workers are actually, I mean, some have termed this the great designation, uh, resignation yeah. this moment, right? And yes, it's true that there are many workers who have resigned from um, their jobs. They're not leaving the labor force, but they're leaving their jobs to seek better jobs that will give them the supports that they need. Um, but in addition to that, there's a lot of workers who are saying, actually, I'm going to stay in my workplace and I'm going to organize. And so that's what we see with Starbucks. That's what we're seeing with mm -hmm. Amazon. That's what we're seeing with digital workers at New York, you know, the New York Times. That's what we've seen. And it's happening across the economy, which I think is really important to name. It's not just the low wage sectors where we see workers in motion right now. It is happening across mm -hmm. the economy. And what's happening is essential workers, many workers coming out of the pandemic or in the midst of the pandemic, since we're not totally out of the pandemic, but are actually asking themselves really hard questions like, is risking my life and my health and welfare worth this job? Are the wages good enough? Do I see a career pathway? What like is this really and what is the purpose of work in the first place? And um, and I think those that cultural opening that we're having as as businesses are transitioning to hybrid workplaces or remote workplaces, like the debates and discussion right now create an enormous opening for us to redesign and reimagine the kinds of protections that we need in this moment, because people are, it's being widely felt in a way that I don't think we have experienced um, in recent decades, right? So one is cultural moment, the last Gallup poll showed an approval of, you know, 62% of the public approves of unions, right, if they could have access to it. So that just requires a multifaceted strategy. And that's what we see happening right now. Everything from what you named, the legislative change and proposals, and yes, they're stuck and they're moving, but we need policy change and legislative uh, fixes, um, uh, for sure. New policies that actually speak to the pain points that workers are struggling with today, including the care infrastructure, which is amazing that people are talking about the care economy in a serious way, but also new approaches to organizing. Um, and that gives me a lot of hope. Like, we talk in the book about bargaining for the common good and the yeah. many ways in which unions are partnering with community partners and organizing as whole people to actually create change that is structural change around how we think about funding education to much more. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then, of course, we're seeing this evolution of partnerships. You know, for years at Jobs of Justice, we we worked with worker centers and labor. Um, I started the first day labor center in Chicago. And back then, it wasn't great in the labor movement to be building a worker center. And then over the years, we saw partnerships build, which were really amazing. But now we're seeing an evolution of those partnerships, one from like just solidarity to solidarity plus strategic alignment in sectors. And so the, all of that, the culmination of all those things actually gives me a lot of hope because we are seeing um, we are seeing wins along the way and we're seeing more people activated and mobilized along the way. And now the big leap we're making, Smiley and I, through this book is that we have to link this work to the bigger question of our democracy and how this really helps us build a healthier democracy in the long run. Yeah. So that's where I'm at. I don't know, Smiley, if you, what you would add or... Smiley, are you more depressed than she is? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm I'm with Cerrito on the glass half full. Good. I think, though, um, so even like how you frame the question, though, right? I want to like, there, there's something we say in our book that is actually counter to this idea that workers have some new power, that the mm -hmm. pandemic gave workers power. It didn't. It, it exposed existing power. So workers, one of the one of the fundamental things we say very early on in the book is that uh, power doesn't go away. It just shifts. It might move to a different sector of the economy or a different location. And so, you know, there's there's always some level of power in the things that we're producing. And just in this technological age, we're producing very different types of things than we were in, say, 1935, when the Wagner Act first passed. And so I want to be clear about that because the pandemic did a really good job in exposing workers who perhaps were seen publicly as simply in low wage sectors and very uh, you know poor um, as actually playing a very powerful role in the economy, being essential, in fact, to the running of, of much of the economy. Yeah. And as a part of the Always Essential campaign, we were able to, to partner with a lot of organizations to really think through how should we test some of the approaches coming out of Harvard Clean Slate, right? Um, what would it look like to set up governance, maybe not in the Department of Labor, but maybe in the Department of Public Health or um, or some other channel for crisis management? And we were actually successful in doing that in Harris County, Texas, at the end of last year, where they now have an Essential Worker Standards Board that is um, that is decision making, that is not simply an advisory body, but helps to make decisions and essentially prepare for crises before they come not just public health crises, but also climate disasters and other other instances where workers are called in as essential and have to kind of risk their lives, risk their lives for us. Um, you know, the other thing that I know I'm excited about in this particular moment is the legislation in California, the FAST Act, which is kind of the beginnings of a, of a sectoral approach and sectoral governance for workers in the fast food sector. Yeah. Which would be incredible, you know, and would expand on some of the, the existing um, platforms we have, like the wage, uh, you know, wage boards in New York, and some of the other uh, experiences we've tried in other places, or even build on our own unique American sectoral strategies. You know, we had DeMarie Smith, president of yeah. the um, or executive director of the NFL Players Association, right yeah. the forward, right. And I mean, you look at a lot of the at the athletic uh, negotiations; they're sectoral agreements. You know, they they negotiate with the league, and each of the team franchises. Uh, you know, essentially goes along with that agreement and it's and it's enforceable and binding in that way. And so 
uh, I think like beginning to build on our own history and not assuming that these proposals are so radical that we have to go to mm -hmm. Europe and, and other parts of the world, but that we actually have practices uh, right here nice. that we can build on to, to kind of expand governance, which is really the point, right? So when we think about structural change, whatever it looks like, we want to make sure that there is an enforceable agreement because really like collective bargaining agreement is just a policy for a workplace, right? So we want to make sure it's an enforceable legal agreement that can be negotiated and renegotiated as things change, that can be enforced by the directly impacted people and workers and stakeholders that have to adhere to it. Like that's that's what that's what democracy is. And so some of these other channels that would be created either through sectoral approaches or community-driven approaches like in Harris County are actually key to that. Um, and then the last thing I wanna to say to this, because I think it'll relate to some of the other discussion, right? So we, we quote uh, Beverly Silver a lot when we talk about power, right? And, and, um, and so certainly in 1935, like when we looked at the power in, in production, we really looked to our manufacturing sector and we're making auto and steel, and, you know, the industrial unions, right? I mean, and, and, and they were talking about industrial democracy, right? They weren't just talking about collective bargaining. They were talking about industrial democracy no, at that time. And now we're in a very similar moment. We're talking about economic democracy and thinking about it in the context of, of uh, some of the sectors where production happens today, which a lot of it is through the platform economy, which, you know, the platforms themselves are new, like Uber and Lyft, but the the uh, theory behind it and how they run is, is the same as it's always been. They're producing data, they're producing different things. And so the power that workers in those sectors have is actually very similar to the power that workers, say, in manufacturing might have had right in 1935. Or likewise, when you look at the, the transportation of goods and items, the power that the longshoremen may have had uh, early and still have, frankly, in many places, yes. um, is also in the case of like the last mile delivery drivers or yes. DoorDash drivers who are delivering things for us. And so, again, the power itself hasn't gone away or increased or decreased, but it's like shifted to different sectors. And it's really on us as movement leaders to see that for what it is, not a new economy, not just the future of work in this like kind of amorphous way. And this is like the intervention that I know Sarita has made her own, in her new role, but, uh, but actually like the shifts, the changing nature of work and where power now exists to, and how to leverage it. Yeah, that's no, that's really, that's great. It's a great, it's a great picture. You know, I started flashing on Walter Ruther and all the work, you know, that he did at the auto workers we really connected movement to movement, right? And and uh, and it was really really profound, right? He was a civil rights leader. He wasn't just a union leader, and and uh, and so on. So, yeah, really really powerful. Um, That's right. And, and just to add on that really quick, Rick, because I'm glad you brought up Ruther and the UAW, right? Because like, so they had these these this incredible base of black workers who were in some ways in this paternalistic position, like Henry Ford, just like some of the old. Uh, plantation owners, right, uh, was like, I'm your, I'm your great savior here, right? Like, I'm going to employ you when no one else will. And right. even though I'm not going to give you all the same rights, like, I'm going to be your hero. I know what's best for you. And the union wasn't even paying attention to that. And they were losing in, in Ford, in uh, at Dodge, at General Motors, yeah. right? And so you've got these, these black workers who agitate the union who are saying, look, you can't win without centering the fight for for you know for equality you can't win without fighting white supremacy and you'll will always you'll always be able to peel off people ford will always be able to peel people off if you don't do this and they began to do it and not only did they win and build one of the biggest locals that still exists with local 600 yeah. but that they 
you know, they created a whole new set of leaders from the plant who then went on to organize the yes. community struggles, like in the Harriet Tubman housing projects and those things. And so it's yeah. critical to think about these struggles. And Ruther's a great example. That's also that's also the union that fought, you know, Mitt Romney's dad uh, over this question of um, whether or not they could negotiate over prices as well as wages. And so when we're talking about bargaining for the common good, it's not that Sarita and I are projecting all these brand new strategies as if we just are the first to think of them or that our generation is the first to test them, but really trying to package them based on where power and the economy and the nature of work has shifted and yeah. thinking about them in that context. Yeah, no, that's great stuff. And yeah, the history of drum and those that, you know, kind of black auto workers is so powerful for those in the audience not familiar. It's it's really worth exploring and reimagining in, in the context of, of today. It's, it's just as Smiley said, I think it's it's rich, rich stuff. Let, let me stay in the workplace and I'm watching the time and want to get to the, the audience questions. But I, I want to stay on one other kind of workplace question and then then pivot into the kind of connections between workplace and and, and you've already hit on this and and, and other avenues, you know, for, for democracy and, and organizing. Um, but, you know, one of the things I'm always puzzled about, and I'm curious your take. So you, you, one of the richest parts of the book, I think you have these worker profiles and, and uh, you know, organizer and activist profiles laced throughout the book. Um, they're really oral histories, you know, with them and, and they're wonderful. Um, and there's a, a Smithfield food processing plant worker, right? Named uh, Lydia Victoria. And, um, and one of the things I, I, you know, really struck me in, in reading what she said is after she, you know, went through the really arduous, you know, task of organizing the plant, she said, um, you know, that now workers and management actually come together, not just to negotiate at the table, but to solve operational problems. And, and she said, the people closest to the work really are the best to spot problems and propose solutions. So, right, she said, when I hear about something, I ask other workers if they're experiencing the same thing. And then we come up with a solution together with the company. Why is it so hard for employers to um, turn to worker voice in actual everyday decision making when there would seem to be, you know, kind of implicit in her right statement is that there's an ROI for the employer. We can actually fix the problem. And and so why don't we see more of that, given that there are a lot of case studies, many by the Aspen Institute and others? We know this works. So why is it so hard to get worker participation in day-to-day decision-making? Yeah, well, I, I'll, I'm happy to start here and just say, well, I, because I think there's too many employers who still view labor as just simply a cost versus labor as a real stakeholder in the business um, and in the business model. And, you know, I'm always amazed at how uh, people really underestimate workers want their jobs to improve, but they want their companies to be successful too. It's like attached to their livelihoods, um, but somehow they're treated like they are only a cost and that their own in their their interest is only about their own wages and working conditions versus like the ideas they have to really improve the business itself, the business model itself, the products, et cetera. You know, in addition to Lydia, you know, one of the other um, workers that we profiled, worker leaders, was a, a man named Jeff Crosby. Mm -hmm. 
And Jeff worked at GE plant for 33 years. And in his profile, he talks about his experience in 1982 when GE decided to open the factory of the future. The factory of the future, yeah. $42 million into buying these old buildings. And they had a union and the union said to them, listen, this is not going to work. Your super automation is not going to work. It's going to be inflexible. It's not going to work. And at the end of the day, like it'll, it'll create few skilled jobs, right? Um, and, but there's like a 24 hour operation needed and you're going to have all kinds of issues with shifts. And, you know, they kind of like shared, like, this is why this is not going to work. Why don't you instead do island production, which was, you know, um, this idea of workers getting skilled at multiple roles and being able to follow the parts as you go along and it creates more flexibility. So not to get into the weeds, but I was fascinated talking to Jeff about this because what he shared is the company just didn't listen to them. And of course, the factory of the future failed. Millions of dollars got lost. And then over time, though, the company came around to this idea of having, you know, um, special like what they now call special machinists, uh, which was the original idea that the union had come up with. And um, because they have power in the workplace, they were able to negotiate a new classification and have the wage standards in place and the whole bit. But it was such a fascinating story of, once again, this example of where workers on the front lines who know best are not being asked their thoughts on the design. And so it's happening. It's not happening enough. I want to be clear. There are some employers who are getting better at this and certainly involving um, employees. my, My job at the Ford Foundation, we actually just did a whole project looking at the introduction of new technologies and implementation of new technologies in workplaces. And we really were like, can employers bring frontline employees together and really develop and design um, technologies in this way? And we have a report coming out soon. But to your point, Rick, there are many reports that demonstrate actually this works. But I think the number one reason it doesn't is because labor is still just seen as a cost versus really valued as a true stakeholder um, around the table. Um, And until businesses figure this out, we will continue to see um, not only... um, bad decisions get made that hurt employees, but it hurts in terms of the product and services. And Smiley and I often talk about just looking at the example of COVID, you know, in Connecticut, there was a study done of nursing home um, where it was a unionized facility where the the death rate of, you know, the patients was so much lower than what you were seeing in the area um, where in non-union facilities. And that was about workers being able to speak up and design together with management what was needed. So, um, but that's, that's the reason that I hold is I think why it's so hard to make the business case. Yeah. So do you want to add anything there? Yeah. I mean, Serena said a lot of it. I'll just add one very quick thing. Uh, and it was 30%, by the way, 30% less deaths and where unions had some form of decision-making. Um, and so it's not just better for the, the company, but also better just like for us, for some people, like for our livelihoods, um, or, or just living in general. Um, but the only addition I would say for Sarita is just that uh, this this trend happened intentionally from people, right? So there was a moment in time when business schools actually trained people how to manage people, and they and they trained on all the different 
stakeholders of a business from shareholders to workers to the community you were part of like they were you know they were a part of the community in many ways and had a responsibility as a company when you were when you were granted that license or that certification and there was an industry and lane windham has a, a fantastic articulation of this in her book in knocking on labor's door there's an industry that um, came to be that changed that and that really had a uh, had, had strong implications on what was taught. So people went from managing people to managing capital and to managing finances in a way that wasn't, um, didn't share the same philosoph philosophy. And so like Sarita said, then workers and labor and unions in particular were seen as a liability more so than a stakeholder. And we all know with stakeholders and any, just like I said, democracy is messy. It's not like you always agree but that the point isn't to always agree. The point is to have enough uh, consultation and discernment together to actually come up with solutions that will be best for everyone. So that I think that would probably be the only addition. Um, and I'm excited for some of the experiments that uh, many people who I know are watching this are thinking about to kind of shift that in a set of, in a number of business schools. Because I think the incoming students in those schools have an appetite for what it would mean to embrace employee activism or embrace some level of decision making that doesn't automatically assume that an organized labor force is a threat. Yeah, no, that's great. I'm going to add one more, which is just quickly, which, you know, I think it's, it is a lot of employers still see workers as a cost only, but I also think there's a lot of self-delusion. I think that they're, you know, kind of, uh, we have our system of, you know, we do pulse surveys all the time and we're getting worker feedback and we have an open door policy that those things are often, I actually think they convince themselves that they really, we, oh, there's plenty of opportunity for worker voice and we listen to workers, um, but it's all through a filter they've designed. That's right. and it doesn't work. So. And it's back to this, this, this fundamental battle of ideas, right? right. Like, am I your kind of paternalistic, have your right. interests at mind, come to me as like your father figure to talk yeah. through things, or am I able to see myself as an equal That's and right. uh, that may not always agree, but that can, you know, have real conversations and discern things in real time. That's right. Yeah. Let me, let me pivot if I can. And, and we've touched on a bunch of this, but really what is the central thread? So, you know, of the book, Improving workers' lives on the job, you write, cannot be separate, separated from improving their lives when off work. They have a stake in their ability to come together collectively, not only as employees, but also in the myriad other ways working people play a role in the economy, such as account holders in banking and finance, consumers, renters, and debtors. As a natural consequence, you write, some of the most successful worker organizing in recent years has occurred at the intersection of several identities not just within the single identity of worker or employee. It's really fascinating. So can you each quickly give me like a good example of, uh, you know, we're acting collectively on and off the job at this intersection of several identities, if you will, has come together to drive real change. I'll just do two. Yeah, yeah. I, just off top. I love, yeah, thank you. your questions are so good, Rick. Okay, um, first of all, uh, the, the West Virginia teachers, right? So a lot of people saw that action as just like around healthcare and wages, people projected as just like a straight union fight. Meanwhile, teachers in West Virginia don't actually have the legal right to collectively bargain, right? And the thing that motivated so many of them was 
the fact that they were being asked to put in their private data all the way down to like their underwear size into this app. And so it was like a data surveillance <laughs> where, you know, their private data was going to be used either against their will or without compensation to justify decreases in their health care. Right. Uh, and the, the three counties that went out first, that walked out first in this statewide action were three of, of if you look at just the political map, the most conservative counties in the state. <laughs> but um, but if you look at it from a map of their relationship to democracy and their history with, with labor activism and standing up for their rights, were perhaps the vanguard, Mingo County, Wyoming County, right? And so um, so that's one of my favorite fights because they were acting, and, and the, Allison and Heather will say this, even though they're from two of the more central counties, will say that they were acting on behalf of the institution, on behalf of students, on behalf of democracy. What they saw was a, a potential spiral into not only data surveillance, but uh, more privatization and things that were not going to be helpful for students, many of whom were facing uh, the opioid ep epidemic and crisis. I mean, one of the stories from a teacher who wasn't one of the profiles, but was certainly quoted in the book where she talks about the that her partner, her husband worked for EMT and they would get a note every morning, like a text. Uh, I can't remember what the exact coding was, but basically warning them of children whose parents had either overdosed or were not at the home anymore so that they could figure out wraparound services for them so they could stay in school or literally buying a child a pillow. So he had his own pillow at night and letting mm -hmm. him nap during the day. Like these, these kind of extreme cases that maybe some of us get to watch during sitcoms like Abbott Elementary were are real life experiences of many teachers. And so they saw themselves as fighting for, I think Allison called it the Republic <laughs> for the institution. And then really quickly, the other example, Rick, I mean, which I think is on a lot of our minds right now is as we watch Amazon workers uh, vote for a union in many places in New York and in Alabama, this understanding that at, at the very least two of, of some of the more most prominent leaders, so certainly Chris Smalls and then Big Mike down in Alabama, yeah. have been very outspoken about the fact that they were they were uh, mobilized and, and I guess radicalized through the movement for black lives. And, mm -hmm. you know, they had a moment where each of them were like, you know, the company's putting out all this stuff on, on black lives matter saying they support black lives and yet aren't providing the appropriate equipment, aren't paying us fairly, aren't listening to us, are using police to surveil us at uh, disproportionate yes. rates, particularly at the majority black plants like investment. And so um, that, that is a real key indicator for labor leaders to understand what are the motivating qualities? What are the things that get people to stick their necks out to think that they should have a say? And that is not just something that's like, I'm going to support over here as an ally, but something that actually is the identity around what gets workers in motion and to think that they should have the ability to have a say at the table. And as we all know, uh, many of those workers won. I mean, even in the case in, in Alabama where the election is, too close to call and workers are currently down, like they came so much closer than anyone ever imagined they would. And they're still challenged ballots. I mean, they still have a shot at this thing. And so, and of course with the ALU winning in Staten Island to everyone's surprise. And so this is a, a, a yet another example of when you actually center these struggles, when you center the whole, the whole person, the whole identity of working people, you win. And you win in ways that are profound and you win in ways that win for everyone, not just the set of workers in, in any particular site. Yeah.
Yeah, Sarita. Yeah. I would just add, um, in addition to those great examples, um, I would I want to bring in examples from the care economy because I think that's the other arena where we see really interesting work happening, where you have domestic workers, again, workers who've been excluded from labor protections, who are nannies, um, house cleaners, uh, elder care providers, who are really have you know I was lucky enough in my former career to be a part of the Caring Across Generations campaign, co-founding that with the Domestic Workers Alliance, and really lifting up the importance of identifying um, and understanding that workers needed to come together with families and individuals. Um, and together, we should be advocating for a whole new care structure, and one that really meets the needs of people across the continuum of care, from child care to elder care, um, and the needs. So affordability was a big piece of it, um, access to supports for working families and yeah. uh, family caregivers and um, the workforce, the quality of those jobs. But what was really important in those efforts is that workers weren't just workers, workers were also people who were in need of care themselves. Right, they were parents. And, they were yeah, parents, so, they were grandparents, yeah. et cetera. The yeah. families, when we say families and workers, families are working families, you know, and we forget that, that like, according to Bureau of Labor, you know, statistics in the next few years, 50% of the workforce will be caring for an aging adult in their families. And we don't yet, we don't have paid leave in this family, in this country, right? We don't have the kinds of supports in place. Um, so we saw amazing work happening in places like Washington State, where care workers, the union, SEIU really advocated for the Washington, the Long-Term Care Trust Act. Right. Or in our stories, we talked about Kimberly Mitchell as another worker who was profiled, who is a retail worker at Macy's, who also talks about her experience as a caregiver to her grandmother with cancer and then her own mother with cancer, who was a leader in the fight for paid leave in, in D.C. that was won ultimately, or even Dolores Wright, who was a domestic worker and another worker we profiled who was you know, really involved in the New York State Domestic Workers Bill of Rights, the first of its kind in the country, and then transformed by that experience and recognized that she could be an advocate in terms of her own housing situation and is now a leader at Crown Heights Tenants Union. Right. And so right. that is, those are examples of the kinds of mm -hmm. ways that when you look at people as whole people, so much is possible. So much mm -hmm. is possible. Yeah. I'm gonna gonna shift to a to a question from the uh, audience and um and, and I think it's a great question, which is how can awareness of best practices be disseminated? Because a lot of beyond Aspen yes. Institute, you know, convenings and books. I mean, the truth is you've cited great examples, right? What's going on in Harris County, right? Some of the you know domestic worker standards and standards boards that have been passed, but they are. But we also talked about the big numbers of so many still left behind. So how do we scale this thing, right? And how, how can, how can, we already know what to do. We're already doing it, but in pockets, how do you, how do you spread that awareness and implementation? Yeah. I mean, the first step is, is creating more opportunities and uh, containers and supports for workers who are trying to organize and collectively bargain in these different ways. And for us to continue lifting them up as examples, not of just cool community campaigns or, or even trying to silo them as alt labor, but actually saying that this is a victory for the labor movement. This is how we're actually expanding mm -hmm. and building power uh, together. 
I think the second thing, particularly from a perspective of, of businesses and business leaders, is an extension of what I said before around business schools. In some ways, I think the curriculum for where these types of discussions happen, if they happen at all, is incredibly narrow. It's often in some kind of like maybe ethics class, if you're, it's an elective, if you're required to take it. And so one of the questions becomes, you know, who's willing to work with those of us in the movement to uh, develop a stronger curriculum that fits within the foundation of any business school curriculum, where they, you know, the state, this idea of stakeholders is a part of the the opening discussion and, and a part of what it requires to have a business is to have systems to engage labor management in ways that are, uh, that are democratic and are valuable. Um, and so I think these are some of the, the critical things. I think, you know, the last thing is to the degree that as, as uh, contributors, philanthropists, uh, stakeholders ourselves, even on other sides, say as consumers, uh, like with Amazon Prime members and things like that, to really yeah. think about our role democratically to think about it not just as people who are consuming something or kind of like receiving something or even just being impacted by a thing to like, what is our relationship to it? Are there others who have a similar relationship and should we try to like negotiate standards together? Uh, what what would this company's behavior look like in my community, right? And I feel like they, uh, you know, we try to do that with the bad business fee, which we talk about in the book. And uh, I know the state of Oregon did that through their own corporate taxes, right? And in terms of who benefits from the state and how much they then have to, to pay back into it. But really like thinking of those relationships, because at the end of the day, like companies or just like regular individuals, like we negotiate economic relationships like constantly and, and companies sign contracts with each other for everything. You got contracts with subcontractors, contracts with your legal people, contracts with your lobbyists or whatever. Why do workers just have one narrow platform through which to negotiate agreements? It, it doesn't make any sense at all. Well, why limit participation? If we're trying to build a healthy multiracial democracy in this country, then we need as many, as messy as they are, platforms for shared governance as we can get. Great. Yeah. Sarita, anything to, to add there? I, the only thing I would add is I want to go back to where I started this conversation around the cultural moment we're in. And that I think the other way we do it is actually finding the the authentic ways that people are digesting information and figuring out how you tell these stories through those venues. You know, like my daughter is 11 years old. She's a soccer player. When she found out that the National Women's Soccer League had unionized, the whole team, I used to coach her team, they all ran up to me. They're like, pay equity. Why don't women get paid the same as men? And they were irate. And they learned about it through like TikTok, you know? And so yes. my point here is that I think sometimes we also limit the venue by which we tell these stories and circulate these stories. Um, but how do we like authentically understand where people digest information, get information mm -hmm. from? And some of that is in the pop culture arena and um, being smart about that or actually Smiley and my decision to have Demora Smith write this forward right. for our book was very much to remind people that athletes have unions yes, they and do. they're better for it, you know, um, but to really help lift up like people's notion of who a worker is and a union is, it's still very much the, the big burly guy in a factory. And that is not who workers today are. It's not limited to that, right? 
Um, so really lifting up the diversity of who we consider workers who are valued in our society and telling those stories, I think, is another way that we break through. Um, we have breakthroughs in this moment. Absolutely. Let me let me ask. I think we may have time for just one more here, depending, maybe one or two more. Um, do you have any experience, another audience question, uh, experience with uh, employees working with shareholders to increase empowerment? And what, what does that look like? There's so much shareholder activism. Absolutely. I mean, just from the on a top line and actually want Sri, you should answer this, too, just from a, uh, your, your kind of new perspective. But, um, you know, some of the biggest pension funds are union pension funds and and are, are literally guided by workers and their set of values and standards and inserting that into uh, shareholder discussions and company discussions. I think additionally, when you think about um, similar funds, whether they're from state, you know, like, the, uh, you know, a state health healthcare like investment in, a, in a, their pension fund or um, or even like foundations, right? Like this is all money that that workers made at some point. And so there's a question, mm -hmm. again, getting back to this idea of who gets to say how it's used is uh, is is at the foundation of it. So certainly with the union pension fund is very direct. Obviously, we you know working people know and that's our money and that's my retirement you're investing. Right. Um, but is it the same with some of these bigger uh, state state run funds? Is it the same uh, with some of the private funds that, you know, we know that that workers generated the income for? Uh, and that's something that I know many, many of us have begun to really think more uh, intentionally about working with partners like like the Ford Foundation and, and many others to really think through what worker-based shareholder activism could look like. I think the only other example are in places where workers themselves are shareholders. Yes. And, you know, historically, like we've seen that, like with um, the original Walmart under Sam Walton, right, where, where workers had a more direct involvement. They actually got uh, paid to some degree with shares and were able to then participate more democratically in that way. And that, of course, got eroded over time with Sam's uh, descendants who are less open to that type of uh, workplace democracy. But I think there, there are definitely models for where it could be really impactful. And some, some of those same workers uh, uh, who are organized with, with Walmart through United for Respect then did, had a similar strategy working with shareholders at Toys R Us after yeah. money managers bankrupted you know, the company because they had very different interests around managing finances and not actually around managing people. And so there are a lot of opportunities where the interests of shareholders and workers can align and also where workers as shareholders can play a unique role. Again, as whole people thinking about uh, the many different capacities they bring to uh, to an enterprise. Yeah, yeah Serena. That's great. I don't know that I have more to add. I know you wanted to try to sneak in another question, but um, but I think that's right. All of that to say that there's huge opportunities and the one other network I would say that at Ford, we've been working a lot with is a network of state treasurers to really um, engage in a conversation mm -hmm. with advocates and others to say, what's your role as state treasurers who oversee these kinds of pension funds? And could what are what what could be a set of values that really speak to the needs of workers that you can imagine um, helping to implement moving forward in terms of your investment portfolios? And so I think there's a lot of opening here. We're just scratching the surface. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Maureen, do you want to uh, pick us yeah, back up? Yeah, we are unfortunately out of time, but this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. I feel like personally, I feel like in this difficult moment when we're looking at this epidemic of low wage work and this 
you know, dicey geopolitical moment and threats to democracy. Like, I just so appreciate this conversation for, to put it in your words, Sarita, reminding us that so much is possible and, and just lifting up the ways that people are making change. This has been really inspiring for me. So thank you both so much. Uh, reminder, this is the book, The Future We Need. Check it out. Um, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate it. Rick, thank you so much for your great questions, great moderation. Uh, thanks so much to the audience for participating. Really appreciate everybody being here. Also have to, again, thank my business and society colleagues, particularly Miguel Padro, but all, all of them who worked with us and my wonderful behind the scenes colleagues, Tony Mastrio, Victoria Prince, Matt Helmer, Yuri Chang, who are so uh, instrumental in making these events happen. Um, really, uh, audience, please do let us know what you think. Uh, please uh, take a moment to respond to that survey on the um, polls tab of your Slido box before you go. You can also, again, send us an email at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. We'd love to hear from you. And please do join us again. Two events coming up, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act on April 27th and uh, talking about Occupational Safety and Health Act on um, May 4th. So please join us again. Thank you for being here and hope to see you soon. Bye. Thanks, guys.